turn with your Bibles to Psalm 133. Continuing to study these songs of ascent, songs they would have sung on their way up to uh, church those three times a year on those pilgrimages when they would be climbing the mountain, the Mount Zion, up to the temple on top of Jerusalem. And you got to have that picture in your mind, I hope, of all those people coming together, people from the north and the south and everybody joining together in the road, bringing all their tithes and offerings, wagons of corn, leading the new young bulls that had been born that year, leading the new young calves that had been born that year up to the house of God as an offering to the Lord. And so all this excess of tithes and offerings and the celebration and jubilee that would have been going on as they're going there. And one of the songs that they would have sung would be Psalm 133, a song of ascent, and it's about unity. And in particular, uh, today I'm going to address it in the context of church unity. What is church unity like is the title of this message. And uh, I think when we get saved, we just assume church unity exists, but it doesn't. <laughs> it's rare. It's really rare and hard to find. And I think a lot of people in church today, especially Church of the United States, have never been in a church that is unified. They've never experienced it. Um, I know for myself, I've pastored three churches now. I've pastored the first church in the, deep in the mountains of North Carolina where I grew up. A little country church had the, had the wood stove. Literally, if I stood at the big pulpit, you know, I had about a foot behind me and there was the wood stove, the wood burning stove. And boy, she'd get hot, I'm telling you. That heated the whole building. And uh, I don't know if that was to stir the preacher up or to make him quit early or what, but I would be sweating bullets, had to wear a full-on suit. You know how I hated that even back then. And it just the fire is going back there. And I pastored that church for about six months, long enough for God to, to show me I needed some help. I needed to go to school. And so I switched from engineering school to uh, just a, a little college where I learned the Bible and I got a bachelor's degree in Bible. And I finished out there. But that was a good experience for me, just sweet, older people for about six months. Then I came uh, and pastored a church for six or seven years that I come with all these aspirations. I had, I had just finished preaching revivals for a solid year. I was graduating with a master's degree. I had, I had a revival every week of the year for one whole year. And so I thought God's kicking me off in the revival ministry. I'm going to be a revival preacher all my life. I told the Lord many times, you know I do not want to pastor a church. It's not what I want to do. I want to be a, a traveling revival preacher. And, and then uh, my last revival of that year was at this church that ended up calling me as their pastor with all of my, you know how I am, about kicking against God and not wanting to do what he wants me to do. And then I finally surrendered. And man, I was there six or seven years. Cindy and I were young married. We were starting to have our babies. And uh, we really suffered there. We really went through hell there, if I could describe it that way. We, uh, I have a file folder that I've kept. Of, I had threats from lawyers. I had uh, several times been uh, threatened to be sued. Uh, I had, our children were threatened as infants. They were threatened that they could be harmed. I mean, I could tell you stories longer than you want to hear about that. Uh, I left there really hopeless. Like, I don't know if you know this about our area, about Franklin County, but Franklin County fires preachers like crazy. Do y'all know that? Our own county 
And I have known so many of them over the years after they uh, leave these churches, they quit. The, the turnover rate of pastors in North Carolina and the, the percentage of pastors that quit. I'm talking about quit preaching. I've known so many pastors that I've loved. They've been friends of mine. They, they leave a church and they literally move in the basement of their parents' house and try to start finding a secular work because they, they just give up hope and they've lost this dream that church could ever be unified. And then I... Then I get to come to Lighthouse, woo, for, been here over 20 years, did you know that? And we have known unity since our beginning. Praise God, there were two men that started this church who, who I think deep in their heart was a desire for unity. They wanted a church of peace, a church where there was unity. And by God's grace, we've had that. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's, it's not only renewed my hope, and I'm, I'm sure many of your hope in what church can be and what church unity can look like. But over the course of the years, God has made this part of our ministry. From our very beginning, we started having, uh, early on, like in the first two or three years, we had two or three preachers come through here who were fired in our county, came in here just hurting and wounded, and, and you loved on them, and we helped build them back up, and they went back out in the ministry. They didn't move in their parents' basement. They, they saw some hope here. Even in the past year, We've had families who've come through here and they're just so discouraged and so beat down from a church experience, a church hurt. I've been uh, praying about preaching a message on church hurt. I may do it before I leave Psalm 133, but people get wounded by churches. They get hurt, they get tore down, and they lose uh, this, this hope that church can be what church is supposed to be this unified body of believers, but you've been doing that for years now, sending people back out, church members, pastors. It's I've stated it from this pulpit many times. I believe it's one of our ministries. It's one of the things God has called us as Lighthouse Church to do, to love on those who've been broken by the church, to love on preachers who've been harmed by the church, and to love on members who have experienced bad things in the church and let them come in here and experience genuine love and genuine care and be just lifted back up by the Lord's work through our lives. Do you own that as a part of our calling? Because I do. I believe it's a part of what God's called us to do. And I, I'm, I just believe in the days ahead as people come in here, it's something we uh, can continue to do. So I, I always listen to a couple of messages from my heroes on the passage I'm about to preach. And, and when you listen to a message on church unity, it's real, real easy, real quick to tell if their church is unified or not by the way they're preaching this message. I mean, it's, if it's not unified, they start telling the church what all needs to happen. And boy, that's a, that's a hard message to preach. I don't know if you thought about that, but when you got to preach a message on unity and you know your church is not unified, that is tough. But I've looked forward to this message for like three weeks now. I've known I'm going to get to preach on church unity, the Lighthouse Church, the church that's unified. It's going to be sweet and precious, and it's going to be a great enjoyment. So I'm not coming to you today trying to say, do this and be that and try better here. I'm not doing any of that today. I'm going to come here today, and I, my goal is to lift up in your mind how beautiful the church is. It's the bride of Christ. It's God's bride. Got to be pretty, right? It's God's bride. I want to lift up in your mind how beautiful this church can be, how beautiful God's bride can be if we are the way that God
God would have us be. So let's look at it. Psalm 133. I'll read the whole psalm to start with. Behold, which means look. Look how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like, and now we're going to have two illustrations, one in verse 2 and one in verse 3. The first illustration. It is like precious oil on the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down the edge of his garments. Second illustration. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so I'm going to go back to my normal way of preaching today. We'll go through the scripture phrase by phrase, and then at the end we'll have an application time. Number one, verse one, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. If you want to mark in your Bibles, if you've underlined the word good and the word pleasant, he's talking about Christian unity, church unity. And he uses two words here. The first word is the word good. It means to be precious. It means to prosper. It also is translated as favor sometimes. But in this context, good here is not good as the way you would say, oh, that's good. This is good by the perspective, from the perspective of God. If you, I've told you this before, I ask you to pray for me, I pray for myself that I would see things otherworldly. Now here's what I mean by that prayer. I pray that God would help me to look at my life and this world the way He does. Does that make sense? Not the way I would in my own selfishness, but the way He would. And so, if God looks down on the church, let's take Lighthouse Church, if He looks down on Lighthouse Church today, what God sees, if He sees brother unity, church unity, what He sees, He says, it's good. It's kind of like in Genesis when He was creating, He would create something and He said, and that was good, and He rested. He'd create something else and He would say, that was good, and He rested. But then at the end of it, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, He says, then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So from the definition of God's perspective, he says it's very good. And when God looks at a church and he sees it unified, God says, that's good. And I don't know about you, but I'd like that if God would say that about us. And then it says that he says, it's pleasant. How good it is and how pleasant it is. Now, if you mark your Bibles, the word translated pleasant here in verse 1 is the same word translated precious in verse 2 if you see the precious oil which was the anointing oil we'll get to that in just a minute but that's the same word in the Hebrew so the word pleasant means something that's precious it uh, literally can be be defined as sweet now my brother-in-law he has that in his vocabulary if he sees something he likes like it. he's from the mountains he sees a good truck you know that he likes he go sweet you know, I think there's a couple of you guys who do that. You would use that uh, terminology. That's not something uh, usually I would say. I have another friend who, if he sees something really good, he'll say, that's what's up. You ever heard him say that? It took me a few times for him to say that, for me to realize, okay, that means it's real good. He'd go, that's what's up, John. Uh, okay, yeah, I think that's good too. I usually use things like, wow, and that's amazing. But again, this is from the perspective of God. And he says, if I could just see a church that's unified, a, a group of believers dwelling together in unity, how pleasant it is from the perspective of God, how sweet it is from God's perspective. 
I mean, it says there in the end of verse 1, they dwell together in unity. Again, these two words, uh, the word together and the word unity is the same Hebrew word. It's like saying together, together, or unity, unity. And when, when God does this in his word in the Hebrew language, it's to give emphasis to it. It's to make it better than just by itself. And so instead of just saying unity, this is really good unity. Or just saying together, this is really strong togetherness. And so he says it is good and it is pleasant for believers to dwell together in unity. I want to remind you parents, again, I, I like to talk a little bit about parenting from time to time here. And one of the things to know about family unity is isolation is not unity. Isolation is separation. So any of your children trying to get isolated, you know, get off by themselves all the time, these are warning signs. Not family unity, that's, that's escapism. That's getting away. They're separating themselves from you. It's kind of like church. If we see somebody who just quits coming for a, a long period of time, they're isolating themselves. It's not unity, it's separation. So he says it's good and pleasant for them to dwell together. Let's look at the first illustration in verse 2. He says it's like precious oil on the head running down the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garment. So if you know in the Old Testament when they had anointed the high priest, that's Aaron, uh, they would pour oil on him and that oil represented the Holy Spirit of God. And so they would pour that oil on the top of his head and so it's giving this real mental picture here of the oil being placed on Aaron's head running down through his beard, just imagine that, so much oil, it runs down through his beard and then runs all the way down his whole body to the edge of his garments. So let me start by describing this oil. Uh, I'm going to do so from Exodus chapter 30, verses 22 through 25. We have this on the screen. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil and an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Now, first of all, notice the cost of it. When it's describing this, this is like a recipe. This could be in your recipe book. So you weren't supposed to do this unless God told you to. It would. Be, this is a recipe, and notice how many times he uses the word shekels. That's a that's a monetary term. It's like saying it's like saying five hundred dollars worth of myrrh, two hundred fifty dollars worth of uh, of cinnamon. What he's saying is he's showing you how much it costs. This would have been very expensive to make this oil. And the amount of it, if you would take all of these ingredients and put them together, the amount of oil this would make is about a gallon and a half of oil. So when you think about, uh, you know, they try to sell this oil on TV now, it's supposed to be anointing oil, and it's in these little vials right here. Yeah, that's nowhere near enough, okay? It, they would have needed a gallon and a half to anoint Aaron that day. And so they would that, that explains why you could pour it over his head. It would run down over his face, through his beard, all the way down his body to the hem of his garment because they're, they're soaking this man. They're soaking him down in oil. Because what are they doing? 
they're not only mentioned in how costly it is, but how holy it is. Notice the last sentence there that I have underlined. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil and an ointment compound according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. So it is something that is being prescribed to be made in this way and then poured on the, the high priest's head and his body, literally, to make this man set apart. That's what holy means. To make him set apart, to make him holy, not ordinary, because he's going to become the man who goes into the Holy of Holies uh, one time a year. Now, I also know about this oil that you could smell. This would have been a sweet-smelling oil. Notice up there in that passage, it says uh, two or three, I think two times it says it was a sweet-smelling. And so the smell of it would have, if you... Uh, I use perfume every now and then. Do you, Eric? Do you use perfume every now and then? Every now and then. I do. If I'm going on a date or something, that's what I'm doing. And uh, Shane, you must. I hear you laughing over there. You, you, if you don't, you need some. some. Some perfume. But when I do, I just, I'm a, I just use one squirt. One little squirt. But uh, imagine a gallon and a half pouring that stuff out. It would fill the room, wouldn't it? Like, it would be out there and the, we got the door open today. Everybody walking by, but what are they doing in there? <laughs> Something going on in there. It's smelling in there. It smells good. It doesn't smell bad. It smells good. But you could smell it. It would spread. That's the point. This oil would spread. Now, let me describe Aaron because this oil was poured on Aaron as the high priest. And it would set him apart. It was where we get our word ordained or ordination, where we would set somebody apart for a particular task of God that makes him holy. And that's what they would have done for Aaron when they poured this oil on him. They would have set him apart, ordained him, make, made him the holy high priest of all of Israel. And what this did for him is it made him a fit person, not ordinary, but a fit holy person capable of carrying the blood sacrifice one time a year inside the veil, into the holy place where nobody could go, into the holy of holies, we've talked about this many times, and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, on the throne of God, on the mercy seat, to cover the sins of the nation. As Aaron would go in there, he had on his, in, in his garment was a, a breastplate that contained 12 jewels, 12 big stones, and one of each of those stones would represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Aaron being anointed would also represent the whole nation. He came to represent all the people of Israel. Think about this. One time a year, one day out of the year. Think if you could only go to church one day out of the year. But one day out of the year, one man carrying on him the responsibility of the whole nation would go into the Holy of Holies to pour the blood on the mercy seat, seat for the covering of the sins of all the nation of Israel. That's a big deal. And what the Bible is saying here is church unity is like that. I'm going to get to this in the end of application. You say, wow, that's a, that's a pretty big statement. It is a big statement. Church unity is like this. It's like this oil, this anointing that Aaron had in the Old Testament. Let's look at verse 3. It's also like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain 
of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So it's like the dew of Hermon. Hermon is a mountain. It's a very big mountain. It's 9,000 feet high. It's 13 miles long, so it kind of wraps around like this. It's in the northernmost part of Israel. If you've been watching the news lately with everything that's happening on, over in Israel, uh, you've probably seen a map at some part, point of Israel. So uh, Mount Hermon is up there in the north in the area that's called the Golan Heights. It's an area that's being fought for. It's been fought for for years in Israel. And so in, in that mountain range that encompasses 13 miles, on one side is Palestine, on the other side is Israel. I've described for you many times, you know, I'm from the mountains. When you go to the mountains, you can see the mountains from about Hickory on, or maybe even Statesville on. But you don't really know you're in the mountains until you start to go up Old Fort Mountain. That's what you guys call it. You're going up Old Fort Mountain. Well, I lived on the other side of the mountain in Asheville. We called it Black Mountain. The same mountain, we call it Black Mountain because we're coming this way. You call it Old Fort Mountain because you're going that way. Because Old Fort Mountain's on this side and Black Mountain's on that side. Does that make sense? So think of this mountain, this Mount Hermon that's up there in the north of Israel. It's a part of Israel. But on the other side of that mountain is Palestine. On the other side of that mountain is where war is coming from. And what God is saying here is this church unity, these brothers unified, it's like the dew of Hermon. Now, let's talk about dew. The dew is what's on the grass in the morning when you get up. If we Sometimes you have a dew, sometimes you don't have a dew. Uh, it, it just It's these tiny droplets of water that cover the ground uh, when you get up in the morning. When I grew up in the mountains, I uh, and now, I'm, now the mountain folks make fun of me now. My family up there, they call me a flatlander. You know that? You bunch of flatlanders down here. And one of the big differences we have is we don't have dew like you have in the mountains. Now, we, we put up hay every year, and we, we like to have some good, thick hay. But hay don't grow here like it does in the mountains. It's so much thicker. It's, it's more dense, like per square foot there's way more pieces of grass that grow it's, it's thicker and the reason is the dew because we have to depend on rain here to get our grass to grow but they a lot of times just get enough dew without the rain for the grass to grow really thick and and really tall so I want you to get in your minds, dew so wet, I have a memory of it from the mountains, that when you get up in the morning, you better not go out there in your sock feet, your socks are going to be drenched. You better not go out there in some slides and walk across the yard, or, or your feet are going to be drenched. Your tennis shoes, as a matter of fact, better not be kind that take in water easily, because if you get up early in the morning and just walk across your yard to your car, your feet are going to be sopping wet, because there's so much dew on the ground. Now, dew in the Bible represents the blessing of God. We see this, first of all, in Genesis chapter 27, verse 39, when Isaac is blessing Jacob, thinking it's Esau. It says, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be as the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. So this is in the blessing when, when Isaac is blessing Jacob. This is in the blessing. He's saying, may you be blessed like the dew of heaven from above in causing the fatness of the earth. 
Proverbs chapter 19, verse 12, it says the king's wrath is like a roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. And so this dew becomes symbolic in the, in the Bible of the blessing of God because some days it's there, sometimes it's not there. But if it's there, it's God blessing. And when God blesses and gives you a heavy dew, what it's going to do is it's going to refresh the land and it's going to cause the plants to grow and the crops to grow. It's going to water the grass. It's going to water the plants, which are going to grow the food, which are going to feed the people, which is this beautiful picture of life. But it all starts with the blessing of God by sending the dew and allowing you to have plenty of food to eat. So then look at the end of verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore, or life everlasting. I'm going to go into application. Application is simply to say this. What what does a unified church look like? What does it look like when families get along in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? When a church has church unity, what does it look like? Number one. Church unity is coming down from heaven. I want you to notice in verse 2, if you look back with me, it says it two times in verse 2. This oil is running down on the beard. Then at the end of verse 2, it's running down on the edge of the garments. And so when it uses this illustration of oil to say this is what church looks like when it's unified, it two times mentions the fact that it's coming down from above. Then also look in, in verse 3 at Mount Hermon. It, it uses the word descending in my version. I have the New King James Version. It's the same Hebrew word translated two times running down in verse 2. So it said this thing, the same word three times. It's running down. It's coming down. And dew gives us a more of a picture than the, the oil. But when we know that when we get dew, where did it come from? It came from heaven. Where did it come from ultimately? It came from God. When the oil was coming down on Aaron, it wasn't just that they wanted the oil on Aaron. They wanted the Spirit of God on Aaron. And where does that come from? It comes from heaven. Ultimately, where does it come from? It comes from God. And so when we talk about church unity, where does it come from? How do we get it? How did Lighthouse get to be unified? How do we sustain it? How come it happens to be here but not there? You need to have the overarching point of Psalm 133 is this. If you are unified, it came from heaven. It didn't come from you because you're just a good guy and you just have a good family. It didn't come from your old pastor just because he's a good preacher or something like that or he's a good unifier or anything like that. It has nothing to do with us and who we are and our our ability to orchestrate or cause or compel something to happen. It comes down from heaven. The same way it started on the head of Aaron and flowed through his beard and down to his garments down to the lower part of his garments. That oil was spreading as it came down off the head of Aaron. And the same way the dew came down on top of Mount Hermon, and it's running down Mount Hermon. It's it's going down the mountain. Now think about the dew for just a minute with me again. Dew are these little tiny droplets of water covering the ground. Now, if you go ahead and Give me that next slide, Abby. I'm going to show you this slide. This is a waterfall in the Golan Heights beneath Mount uh, Hermon. Okay, this is this is there in the Golan Heights at the bottom of Mount Hermon. Now picture these water droplets, this dew that has formed on on Mount Hermon. 
And as that dew gets thicker and thicker, the droplets get bigger and bigger. And as the droplets get bigger and bigger, let's say they're on a leaf that's folded like this. The droplets of dew begin to run together into that leaf. And they actually start to run off that leaf onto the ground. And then all those droplets come together and begin to make a little stream on the ground. And then that little stream of droplets joins in with this stream of droplets and they begin to flow even more. How are they flowing? They're flowing down from above. They're coming from heaven. It is that same droplet that started at the top of the mountain that is flowing like this at the bottom of the mountain. This is from the dew of Mount Hermon to where at the bottom of the mountain now it's flowing with such strength and such power and such unity and so many thousands and millions of droplets that now it's making a waterfall. Isn't that amazing? That's what he's saying, church unity is like. It is so much bigger and stronger and more powerful than one family. It is so much bigger and stronger and powerful than one preacher. It is so much bigger and stronger and powerful than one individual. This unity that we experience in our church is not a credit to a family or a person or a leader or anybody else. It's a credit to God because it comes down from heaven above and it falls upon one of you. Maybe it started in your heart as a droplet like this. Oh, to be a part of a unified church. Maybe it started in your heart as a droplet like this. I've been hurt by church so much, I don't want to be hurt anymore. Maybe it started a droplet in your heart like this. If I could just be in a place where I know friendship and love and get to know people who love Jesus like I love Jesus, wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? But as those droplets come together, they get stronger and they get more powerful and that love grows, but it's coming down from heaven. We didn't earn it. We didn't create it. We didn't cause it. It comes from God. It's not coming from your leadership. It's not coming from your families. It's coming from God. And it flows down into this church. The same substance that started at the top that was given from God is now flowing together. But now that we are unified, it is powerful and it is strong and it has the power to wash out into the world, into your friends' lives, into your family's lives, where you can hopefully invite them to this place and not be embarrassed and not be ashamed. You know how you, you first start going to that church and you think, boy, this is a good church. And this, this is a good place. I'm glad I'm here. And then about six months in, you're like, whoa, there's some problems in here. You ever had that happen? There's some serious problems going on here. Imagine going in about six months in, you're like, I've never experienced such sweetness. And you're thinking, that's what's up. <laughs> this, is, this is what I thought it could be like, but I never experienced it. This is sweet. This is precious. This is good. I want to start at that point because I think that's the main point of Psalm 133. And I think if we ever lose church unity, that's where we would lose it. Because we would begin to think that it's something we do and we wouldn't recognize it as a blessing from God. And so I just want to take a minute publicly to thank God this, this little thing I'm about to say don't mean much to you if you've never been a part of the Church of Discord. But if you have, can you, can you, we're not praying right now, but you just join with me in your mind to thank God. Can you thank God 
how sweet it is to be a part of the church that's unified. It's so beautiful, isn't it? I give God glory for it. I give God praise for it. It's to His credit and not to anybody else's. Number two, an application. Church unity is better than the anointing of Aaron. Because verse 2 is an illustration of this precious oil, which is anointing of Aaron. Let me give you two reasons it's better than the anointing of Aaron. Number one, the oil represented the Holy Spirit's anointing for Aaron. But you actually get the Holy Spirit. You see, for Aaron, there was a special mixture. We read that. We read that. That order of mixing the oil to anoint him. So he could be anointed from on high. But we're the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And you don't have the anointing that comes from a mixture of oil that was poured on your head. When I do marriage counseling, I, I draw stick figures. And I draw, I draw a circle. That's the head. And I put Jesus. And I draw the a square. That's the body. And I put the husband and wife. That's, that's a biblical illustration. Jesus is the head. Husband and wife is the body. But that's also an illustration of the church. Jesus is the head. You and I are the body. That makes sense? You with me? Think of this imagery of Aaron. The oil is being poured on Aaron's head, running down and covering all the body. Aaron's anointing is from oil. Our anointing is from Jesus. Jesus is the head. And the anointing of Jesus is flowing down and covering all the body. All of us. Aaron had a special mixture of oil so he could be anointed. You have Jesus as your Lord and that's how you're anointed. The real oil of anointing runs down the head of Jesus, the true high priest. Not after the order of Aaron, Hebrews says, but after the order of Melchizedek. The high priest, not who serves in temples made with hands on the earth, but the high priest who serves in the real temple, in heaven, in glory. That's the high priest, Jesus. And you have that anointing running down his head. The, the Bible says down to the bottom of his garments, which means it touches every part of the body, every member of the body. That means if you're here today and you feel like you're the lowest one here, you're the smallest one here, even you have all this anointing that comes from the head flowing down to the lowest part, everyone gets anointed by Jesus who is saved, which means all people who are saved have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Second reason it's better than the anointing of Aaron is because Aaron went into the holy place, the temple, one time a year. You become the holy place where God dwells in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? don't own you anymore. God owns you now and He has set up camp in you. He's made your body the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You say, how, how important is that? How important is that to, to believe and to know that my body becomes the dwelling of the Spirit of God? Here's how important it is. That Romans says if you don't know that, if you don't have that, then you're not really saved. If you're here today and you say, I don't, I don't get all this talk about the Spirit. I've never experienced the Spirit. I don't know what the Spirit is. I'm not sure I've even ever felt the Spirit. Or 
known the Spirit, then you have to question your salvation. Listen to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Romans 8, 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So it's this awareness of the Spirit of God moving in your life, the temple of God, bearing witness with your spirit, leading you by the Spirit of God. If you have that, you're God's. If you don't have that, you're not God's. And he's saying, church unity is like that. What does that mean? Church unity is like that. It's better than the anointing of Aaron. It's something supernatural. It's something not earthly. Do you know this? In our in our state, in our country, people are joining soccer games, uh, bingo clubs. Down there where my boys just moved, they were just telling me there's all these sports things, but they're really not even about sports, Jack. They're about drinking. <laughs> there are all these different sports they can do, but it's it's about drinking. It's so you can drink with buddies and do this sport or whatever. There's all kinds of clubs and organizations and groups you can join. And why are people joining all these things? You listen to people talk about it. No matter how dark you may think that group is, or how ugly you may think that group is, here's what they'll say. I've never been loved so much. Have you ever heard people say that? They want to experience love. Real love. They want to experience friendship. Real friendship. anointing of God that falls on the church that is united. What is that anointing for if it is not to show the world the love of Jesus Christ? What is that anointing for? If you're here today and you say, I can testify, I've got that spirit like you just read about from Romans in those three verses. I know I'm saved. I've got that spirit. God didn't just give you the spirit of God so that you could just sit there and just exist in this church. He gave you that spirit because he wanted to anoint you together with the rest of these believers so that we can show love and friendship and kindness to people who have never experienced it before. And listen, the church is to be much better at it than the world. We're anointed to do it. We're supernaturally empowered to do it. If God said to you this morning, I'm going to put the spirit of God on you and I'm going to anoint you to do something, wouldn't that excite you? Wouldn't that get you ready to go? You'd say, okay, sign me up, Lord. I want you to go and use me. I want you to take my life and pour me out. I want you to use me. And that's what he's saying here. He has looked at the church and seen that it is unified. And in its unity, God says, now I'm going to anoint you. I'm anointing you to go to show the world the love of Jesus Christ like they've never seen it before. And we know this all too well. The devil is aware that this is why the Lord anoints the church. Because the devil's number one attack on the church is to create division. Because there's nothing that undermines the testimony of the church of this world than a 
a divided church, a church of discord. But there's also nothing that proclaims the glory of Jesus more in this world than a united church that has the anointing of God on Imagine this. We pray for God to give an anointing in this service. When we have service, that when somebody comes in here, they would experience the anointing of God. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. It is the anointing of God upon your family and your family and you and you to go forth into your friends and your workplaces and your neighborhoods and display the love of Jesus that people have never seen before. It's not even something we ask God for or beg God for or even pray for. It is something God does supernaturally. The anointing on the church that is united. is better blessing than church united is better blessing than dew. Let me think about dew for just a minute. Dew is, let's say dew was there this morning. I, I didn't, didn't get out there. Clocks changed today. I didn't get out there this morning and walk through the grass to see if the dew was there. I don't know. Did anybody, is the dew there this morning? I, I don't think it was. It's gone. Right? It's dissipated. It's gotten warm. It's it's just kind of gone away. Dew dissipates. But church unity doesn't dissipate. In other words, it never goes away. Dew had to be fresh every morning. But look at what verse 3 says. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This blessing that God commands that's like dew, it doesn't need to be fresh every morning because it is it is everlasting. It's this, this blessing that God puts on the church that lasts forever. The same God who blessed this church yesterday is blessing this church today and will bless it tomorrow and will bless it throughout all eternity. We know this about dew from looking at dew that it gave the blessing because of what uh, Isaac called when he blessed Jacob. He called it the fatness of the earth. In other words, it, it made food grow. It caused food to grow, and that was a part of the blessing. Jesus gives life by blessing you. Look what it says in verse 3. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. Circle the word there. The word there is from Mount Zion. From this place where God dwells, He commands the blessing life forevermore. Jesus gives life by blessing you, and He gives it to you more and more abundantly. Let me give you some scriptures that say this. John 6, 47. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 10, 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 2 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 5.11 And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away to, into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This blessing from God does not need to be renewed every day. It lasts for eternity. This life that God gives is eternal. And the last thing I want you to notice in verse 3 is that it is commanded. It says, For there from Mount Zion the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It is commanded. It says in Psalm 148 verse 5, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Think about creation. In creation, God commanded certain things and they happened. He commanded the sun and the moon and the stars, and there they were. It's from His voice. He commanded these things and they happened. And here it's saying in verse 3 that He commands this blessing life forevermore. He commands it. And it happens. I don't know about you, but that gives me a great joy and a great peace. Church unity is an anointing commanded by God. During that time when I was preaching to that church, it was very much divided. The whole community knew it was divided. Everybody there knew it was divided. And I especially knew it was divided. I had a good friend who used to say to me, John, he's trying to encourage me. He said, John, if you'd set the pulpit on fire, people will come and watch it burn. It's pretty good at it. I like that. You'll set the pulpit on fire, people will come and watch it burn. And it did encourage me when he'd tell me that, get me all pumped up and ready to preach and stuff like that. But here's what I realized. It don't matter what's going on in the pulpit. It don't matter what money's being given out to missions. It don't matter what kind of buildings you're building. It don't matter what kind of ministries you have or programs you have. If that church is divided and in discord, it doesn't have the anointing of God or the blessing of God. How sad. Church unity is an anointing commanded by God, and church unity is a blessing commanded by God. So on this day, I want to praise God for what He's doing. I could get really emotional about it. I want to praise God for what He's doing in this church. It's all to His glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Would you take just a minute and thank God bless him for it. Just you, you pray and say, Lord, I bless you for allowing me to be a part of a unified church. Then would you thank him? Thank him that there is an anointing upon your life because you're here. There is an anointing on your life and there is a blessing on your life. And would you pray for God to use you and your family to show the love of Jesus anybody you would come in contact with that you would be able to testify that God's bride is beautiful. We need that testimony going in this world today. A lot of people talk bad about the church. Can you be somebody who would testify God's bride is beautiful. God's church is beautiful.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. part of it. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do through this church in the days ahead. I pray for the men who are here today, Lord. I pray that you give them a vision of how God's going to bless their family, just like that song we sung a moment ago. To four generations, Lord. Give the men here a vision of their children growing up godly, marrying godly, having godly children that would be grateful. Give these men here a vision of that happening four times, four generations of children and children's children and children's children and children's children that do this, Lord, but love the Lord their God more than anything else on the earth. Father, give these men here a vision, even a prayer in their heart, Lord. It's not about how much money these descendants of ours make. It's not about where these descendants of ours live. It's not even necessarily about what comes or goes in this old country we live in, Lord. What I cry out to you for today, Father, is that my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren would love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. When I'm long gone, they would call upon the name of the Lord. When they came call on my name, they'd call on your name, Lord. You are most important. You are worthy. Father, let us have this dream, this vision, and anoint this church to bring about families that are real and really in love with you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?